So, welcome back. We get to start back up in Luke. And so this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to get into part of chapter 6 also. So first off, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word, for the gift of your spirit. And we, we know and we understand that without you opening our eyes, we would not be able to behold you. We would not be able to understand your word. There were many, we're going to see some today, who, were, who probably had the Old Testament memorized, and yet they didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't see him to be God. And so just being able to have you know, some, some head knowledge doesn't mean anything. And so this morning, Father, help us to, to see you and to see ourselves that we would be quick to turn and to, and to turn to you and demonstrate obedience and worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, let's just uh, one quick recap. Why did Luke write this book? Who's it written to? I guess I'll, there's a couple of questions. I, I lied. Who did Luke write the book to? <coughs> Theophilus. Theophilus is, is likely a person. That's likely his name. And so we have, he has a Greek name. He's not Jewish, which we understand because Luke takes time to explain things that are Jewish. He takes time to give geographical references so that Theophilus might have some ideas to how these places relate to each other, which is something you wouldn't have to do if you know he lives in Israel, right? I don't have to explain to you the, the relationship between Meadow Vista and Colfax or Meadow Vista and Auburn, right? Because we all live here. And so we understand those things. Those are second nature. Theophilus doesn't have that, and so Luke takes time to explain some of them. Now, why did he write this book to Theophilus? Again, I'm, I'm looking for three. I'm looking for three words. All right, so that know with certainty. Okay, those are the three words I want to lock in your heads. I want them locked in mine. He's writing this to Theophilus so Theophilus would be able to know with certainty. That word certainty is coming out of the ESV translation, but it's the idea that, that Theophilus would be able to have confidence that this is not something that is um, some, that somehow is unknowable. He wants Theophilus to understand that there is a solid foundation for believing who Jesus is and what Jesus requires. There's a solid foundation for that. It's not a blind faith. Now there are some things that, you know, we, you know, kind of take for granted because it's being represented to us and it's somebody that, you know, maybe we know and maybe we would, we would trust. That's not the case here. There is proof as to who Jesus is. 
And so when Luke is relating the different incidents that he puts in his gospel, that's part of the reason why he's doing it. Theophilus, there's a solid foundation for your faith. So, Luke chapter 5. Now, it just struck me in reading, we're going to cover all of chapter 5 in the first 12 verses, first 11 verses, no, excuse me, the first 16 verses of chapter 6. And there is a common theme through all of these little vignettes that Luke is stringing together. And again, remember that Luke is being purposeful in how he's putting this stuff together. And the theme that is running through these is that Jesus has authority. Jesus has power. And there are a number of ways in which those powers, that authority, is going to be demonstrated. (coughs) Excuse me. He begins in chapter 5. Now, Dave, actually, um, there's always a thing about poaching uh, with the teaching here. Uh, You know, somehow, sometimes paths cross. Dave poached my part of my chapter last week in the main service when he talks about Peter going fishing. And so, the first part of chapter 5, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Now, when you see the phrase word of God in the Gospels especially, what comes to your mind? Jesus. Okay, Jesus, right? Because Jesus is referred to as the word of God. Now, the construction in this particular phrase is more in line with the idea that Jesus is speaking the words that are coming from God. He is speaking God's words so that when he is speaking, it's not him. He is speaking as the oracle of God. And so, and people realize that Jesus' teaching is different, right? Several times you see in the Gospels how um, Jesus spoke as one having what? Authority. That he doesn't speak as the scribes and the religious leaders. Because who did the scribes, who did they quote? Most of the time, they aren't quoting Moses. This is something that we need to understand about Judaism. They're quoting tradition. They're quoting other rabbis. They're quoting the Talmud. They're quoting the Mishnah. Those are the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament. And so even today, when you talk to, if you were to speak to somebody who's a Jewish religious leader, he's not quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting people who have commented on the Old Testament. And so here again, um, Jesus, he comes along and all of a sudden, oh no, he is speaking 
God's words. And people realize that there is a distinction between what Jesus teaches and what they're used to getting in the synagogue on on the Sabbath. Now, he uses Peter's boat to get away a little distance. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to speak in a crowd. It is difficult to speak in a crowd when they're all tight around you. That's not easy to do. And so Jesus is trying to get a little distance. And since they're at the edge of a lake, uh, the only way you're going to get some distance is to get out into the water because the people typically cannot follow you there. So he gets Peter's boat, has Peter go out a bit so that he can speak to the people. And he does. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has met Peter. And that's probably something that we should understand here. This is at least the third time that Jesus has had contact with Peter. When you look, um, if you look in your Bible here, you'll see that there are references back to Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, and excuse me, Mark chapter 2 and John chapter 1. That is actually referring to a separate incident. Because in those three, in those three um, stories, they're fishing. They're on the water when Jesus contacts the disciples, specifically Peter and James and John. Here, they're not on the water. They've been fishing all night. And now they're out and they're washing the nets. And so that's different. The other time that Peter's had contact with Jesus, we've already seen back in chapter 4, and I realize it's only chapter 4, but it is three months ago that we, that we went over chapter 4, um, where Jesus came into Peter's home and healed his mother-in-law. She had a fever. He comes in. He heals her. So Peter, Peter's had, he's rubbed shoulders with Jesus before. And so here, we keep going. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Peter is a professional fisherman, right? It's what Peter does for a living. And there were certain things that were known about the Sea of Galilee. The Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, same body of water. And you'll see it in John, it's referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same body of water. One of the things that's known about the, um, the Sea of Galilee is if you want to go fishing, you go fishing at night and you fish in the shallow water. That's, that's, the, that's the lowdown. That's the inside scoop on the Sea of Galilee. It's daytime and Jesus, who is what by trade? He's a carpenter. What do carpenters know about fishing? Probably not much. Certainly not as much as some guy who's out there on the lake every day, right? So here comes this carpenter saying to Peter, hey, dude, go out into the deep water and put your nets down. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do, as you say, literally at your word, I will go out 
and let down the nets. Now, it's interesting. Does anybody have uh, the word Lord there? Everybody has master? Okay. This is a different word than is often translated master or Lord. It's, it's sometimes translated that way, but it's actually a different word. And it's a word that's used. It, it, it would be often translated commander, chief, boss. So it's, it's a term of respect. It's a recognition of, you know, having some authority. It was interesting because uh, epi, epistatus, epistatus would, would be one who would be ranked behind the proto-status. So this guy isn't an overall command. He's basically the right-hand man. So he's got authority. But again, it's, there's no attachment of divinity here. It's a Luke word. It's used several times in the New Testament, but always by Luke. It's not used by any of the other gospel writers. And he's not saying it in a snarky way. He's, okay, no, boss. No, yeah. it's not, okay. he, no, he's not being snarky. He's not, he's not being disrespectful. He just doesn't realize exactly who Jesus is. He's had enough contact with Jesus to know that Jesus isn't your run-of-the-mill carpenter. But he's not fully convinced of, of, of Jesus' mentality. He hasn't come to the point yet where he's willing to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not there yet. So, chief boss, we were out there all night, and we got skunked. And he doesn't go into some of the other All right, at your word, we'll go out and we'll put out the nets. And again, keep in mind, these nets are heavy. This isn't, this isn't a light request. Peter's going to have to work, and he's already been working all night. In fact... What's Peter thinking about as he's washing the nets? Man, I get to go home in a few minutes. I get to get some sleep. Because what's going to be tonight? Another night out here on this lake. And so, but I'll do it. I'll do it for you. There's another thing here too. There's some singulars, singulars and plurals in here. Peter's not the only guy in the boat. It's just Peter's boat. There's other guys that are in there that are in there to work. Because again, the nets are heavy. You gotta have multiple people in order to wield them. <clears throat> when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. That is a lot of fish. Now, this gets the fishermen's attention. Number one, they've never had a catch like this. Number two, it's not fishing time and certainly not anything where they would expect 
to be just about swamping both boats. So what's a question you think might be going through their minds? It's not shallow water. Who is this guy? Who is he? He doesn't do this for a living. He just told us to do something that, frankly, <laughs> I'm going to do it because you said so. And now all of a sudden, they've got fish coming out of their ears. Who is this guy? And what's Peter's response? When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, it's literally knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a, go away, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, where have you heard words like this before? Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his glory filled the temple, the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory, right? And what does he do? He's on his face. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, right? So this isn't, Peter isn't doing something like the Gerasenes are going to do in a few chapters. Remember the Gerasenes? Jesus uh, cast out the demons and the demons say, let us go into the herd of swine and, the, and a couple thousand pigs go running off some cliffs into the Sea of Galilee. And the Gerasenes, the, 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 the swine herders go back into town and tell them, hey, this is what happened and what do they do? Would you please leave? We don't want to have anything to do with you. More specifically, we don't, you, we don't want you to have anything to do with us, right? Peter's not saying that. Peter's realizing he's a sinful man and he's in the presence of somebody who's not like him. Jesus knows things. Actually, I'm not even sure if it's Jesus knows it or if Jesus just flat out caused it. Not too many chapters from now, Peter and Jesus are going to have a little discussion about whether or not it's, they have to pay the poll tax. And what's Jesus going to tell Peter? Go down, cast in your net, the first fish you take up, open its mouth, and there will be a piece of money in that fish's mouth that is enough to pay my tax and yours. How does he know that? How can he know that unless he's God? And so again, these guys, and do you ever find yourself looking at the, at the disciples and the apostles and going, when are you going to get it? When is it finally going to dawn on you when you're finally going to have your V8 moment Oh, that's who this... It has never been about us being able to recognize who Jesus is or who God is. Who were the most knowledgeable people in Israel about the law? 
Yeah, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the lawyers. Most of these guys had the law memorized. Yet, how many of them came to understand who Jesus was? In fact, truth be told, they knew who Jesus was. We're going to read that Jesus is telling parables about the, the landowner, right? Who goes away and the people come in and they're taking care of it and, 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 and growing their crops and, and all, he sends people back to take what is rightfully and lawfully his. And they beat some, they kill some. Finally, he sends the son and what do they say? This is the heir. So let's kill him. And then this is going to belong to us. And what's the last statement in that parable? The Pharisees understood that Jesus was talking about them. They knew who he was. And they rejected him anyway. And so again, it's not about knowledge. I am grateful beyond words that there are people here early on Sunday morning to be able to hear the teaching of God's word. But that in and of itself is not enough. Unless somehow that is translated over here into obedience and into adoration and love and worship, then frankly, all it does is stand to condemn us in the day of judgment. So again, it's not just about knowledge. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear from now on, You'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to, shore, to land, they left everything and followed him. So now, here again, Jesus has had contact with Peter before. Now, Peter is leaving everything so that he can follow Jesus. Jesus has authority over how and when he reveals himself. You know, something else struck me about this. Peter's married, right? Has to be. He's got a mother-in-law. Peter just walked away from his livelihood. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee their dad, they're walking away. It just struck me, here's the kindness of God that he's providing for their families ahead of time. Here's this huge catch of fish, bigger than anything they're used to getting. And so here's God, God's provision for them so that when they walk away from their livelihood, their families are still cared for. So Jesus has power. He's got power over the created order. He has power because he's speaking the words of God. 
He has power over how he reveals himself. And now he's going to start demonstrating how he's got power to cleanse both of leprosy and of sin. So here come the next two stories. Verse 12, while he's in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, begged him, saying, Lord, and this is kurios, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, we need to understand a couple things about leprosy. First of all, if you were a leper, were you clean? No. You were ceremonially unclean, which means what? Yeah, you couldn't even live in town with everybody else. You were outside the camp. You couldn't go to the temple. You were excluded from worship. You are an outsider, pretty much in every way, shape, and form, other than the fact that you could still be Jewish, but you couldn't enjoy the privileges of being Jewish because you're afflicted with leprosy. And something else to remember, when you're unclean, what happens to anything that you touch? It's unclean. And so it's to be avoided. Now, lepers were supposed to take the initiative here too. They were supposed to keep their distance and not put people in the position where they could be somehow unintentionally defiled. This guy has an inkling who Jesus is. So he takes the initiative and he gets within touching distance of Jesus. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Does he have faith? Yeah, he does. Because what is the limiting factor as far as the leper is concerned? Yeah, Jesus has the power. He has the ability. You know, here's the interesting thing. Outside of the Gospels, how many examples are there in Scripture of somebody being healed of leprosy? It's in your notes. Two. Two. And one of them was a sign to begin with, right? Because when uh, Aaron and Miriam are getting cantankerous with Moses, God says, okay, we're going to put an end to this right now. All right? Miriam, put your hand inside your garment and pull it out. She puts it in, and when she comes out, She's a leper. Now put it back in and take it out. And it's cleansed. The only other occasion is Naaman the Syrian. So, if you've got two examples of healing of leprosy over a period of a thousand years, how current do you think the priests are in the tabernacle with the laws concerning cleansing and the sacrifices for leprosy? You know what? I think I'm going to have to check the book on that one. 
because that's not something that happens every day. You've probably got priests. You probably have generations of priests who have never offered those sacrifices because it just doesn't happen. And so now, here's this leper. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what's Jesus do? I'm willing. He touched him. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, the leprosy left him. So again, when Jesus heals, what's it look like? Immediate and complete. You have to wonder how many years it had been since that person had been touched. You got it. Yeah. And, and now here again, I thought that somebody who touched a leper, what happens to the guy who touches the leper? He becomes unclean. Is Jesus unclean now? No. Why not? Because he is the source of cleansing. I can cleanse you. And by the way, if Jesus can cleanse a leper, then he can cleanse the nation. And this is... <laughs> Got to wrap our arms around this one. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So, shut up. Don't talk about this. What's the guy do? He can't stop talking about this. And, and, and again, can we appreciate why? This is kind of, I mean, look. <laughs> He's just been healed of leprosy. And he can't stop talking about what Jesus has done for him. The ironic part, Jesus has commanded us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and to make disciples of the nations. And why is it that so often it seems like a cat has got our tongue? But the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now Luke again is the one who really focuses on this and brings it up continually in his gospel. That Jesus would go off by himself into a remote place. There's no one else around him. Again, what was the big deal with the Pharisees? How did Pharisees pray? Exactly. They want to be seen because it's a demonstration of how pious they are and how spiritual they are. So really, what's their prayer about? It's all about me. It's not about actually praying. It's so that people will think, oh, wow, look at that guy. Where's Jesus going to pray? Alone. No one's around. No one's following him. And in fact, he gets up and goes out before the sun's up. 
oh, Fui, we're going to see here in a minute. He's going to pray. The night before he chooses his apostles, he goes and he prays all night. So here's the funny thing. Remember the fishermen fish at night? And they're thinking, you know what? No, nobody else does what we do. Jesus does. He's just laboring where nobody can see. And so again, uh, Luke focuses on that. That's one of his you know, unique things about Jesus is how much he prays and how dependent he is on God. And so again, you get the impression now that Jesus, everywhere he goes, uh, in our day, we would think of paparazzi, right? There's people who can't show their faces in public without people wanting to take pictures of them. Oh, oh, he's having a latte. Jesus, oh, he's got crowds. And what are these people wanting? Most of them are wanting to get healed. They have a problem. Jesus can fix my problem. Now, does that mean that they're going to turn around and follow him? You know, I wonder how many thousands of people Jesus healed in three years. And yet, when it comes to after his resurrection and his ascension, how many people are in the upper room? There's 120. There were thousands that had been healed. And yet most of them, it was always only about what can I get from him as opposed to, you know, this guy's got authority over me and over my life. Yeah. Yeah. Where are the other nine? So the crowds are starting to come to him. Now Jesus is also starting to attract some other people. Who are they? Well, that's the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. Now, should he be attracting their attention? Yes. Why? They should be looking for him. Well, they should be looking for him because he's the Messiah. But what else? I mean, and, and, and I would expect Brian to understand this issue. Because there's another issue why. They're shepherds. They're supposed to be, Right? God uses the idea of the religious leaders being shepherds. In fact, how does he refer to the religious leaders? They are bad shepherds. If you go back to Ezekiel, they're bad shepherds. Why? Because they're fleecing the flock. The very people they should be caring for, they're taking advantage of. Jesus accuses them of it as well, right? when they take away widows' homes, when they tie up these burdens and lay them on people and they themselves are not willing to lend a finger to help carry them. And so, should they be looking at Jesus? Yes, they should. Because here's somebody coming into town and this guy doesn't talk like everyone else. So, should we be checking out his message? Yes. Should we be checking out who he is? Yes, we should. 
they should also be recognizing that uh, this guy's not normal. He does things that only God can do. But what's the problem? If they realize and they acknowledge who Jesus is, what happens to them? They must decrease. They're not, yeah. Okay, so going back to John the Baptist, right? John, all your disciples are flocking to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. Attach, use one word to describe that attitude. Humility. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they don't have any of that. Because it's all about them. It's all about their ego. It's all about their status. They have more friends on Facebook. They have, you know, it's, you know, they really are the big dogs on the block. And they're not going to be if, in fact, they, they come under Jesus, if they're going to be Jesus' disciples. And why would they know that, by the way? Why would they know that somehow they're going to have to be, become humble if they're going to walk with Jesus? Because, because he is what? He's humble. If you're going to follow a humble guy, if you're going to be a learner from a humble guy, what is expected that you're going to become? Exactly, because the hope is you're going to become like your master, right? And so they're looking at this and they're going, uh, this guy doesn't have a place to live. What's that going to look like for me? When you're rich, again, the rich young ruler, right? How does that end up? I've done all these things. I've kept the whole law. Liar. But that's okay. We'll set that one aside. Now, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he goes away sad. Why? Because he had many possessions. And he had no interest in becoming itinerant. Itinerant is a very polite word for what? Homeless. He's got no interest in becoming a transient. So again, they're watching for him. So one day he's teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So, he, Jesus is locked and loaded. He's ready. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher in, <laughs> into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now, <laughs> I, I hope I've got friends like this. All right? These guys are not going to take no for an answer. All right, we can't go, go, go in through the door. Uh, in my former life as a fireman, we got to make holes in places where holes did not exist. There's nothing like being able to take a hard top and make it into a convertible. You know, we have the tools. 
or cutting through the roof. So they cut through the roof of somebody's house to drop this guy down in front of Jesus. Pretty presumptuous, isn't it? When you think about it. I promise not to come over to any of your houses with a chainsaw, all right? If the door's locked, I'm not going to make an opening in the roof. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, how is that going to go over with the Pharisees? Whoa, wait a minute. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, are they correct? That is a true statement. The second part of the statement is true. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Sin is an offense against God. You and I do not have the ability to forgive sins on God's behalf. We can't do that. Now, the first part, who is this who speaks blasphemies? There's an assumption here now, isn't there? What's the assumption? He's not God. That's the assumption. He's not God. So. Because it would be blasphemy. Absolutely, it would be blasphemy. If I were to say something like that, that would be blasphemy. It would be. It would be. So, Jesus is not one to waste an opportunity. Now, it helps when you know what's in somebody's heart, all right? Jesus has got a little bit of inside information here, right? Which, again, he's demonstrating to them, I'm not some local yokel. Not when I can tell you what you're thinking. Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? Which is easier to say, by the way? Your sins are forgiven. Why? Yeah. How do you know? How do you know? Hang on a second. My sins are perched on top of my head. And everybody, you all can see them. Y'all on the tape can't. That's too bad. You ought to be here. Here's the glasses. So if my sins are forgiven, the glasses are gone. And everybody can see that. Y'all can see that. But you can't tell that. So, rise up and walk. Well, either he does or he doesn't, and the dude is paralyzed. He just got lowered on a stretcher through the roof. He'd have walked in if he could have, right? But he can't. So which is easier to say? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, there's a reason for this healing. The reason for the guy, he's going to reap immediate benefits because he's going to get healed. But that healing is to demonstrate a point. Jesus has power not only to cleanse the leper. Jesus has power to forgive sin. He's able to cleanse from sin. 
so that you may know. Again, can you hear Luke's purpose here coming through here? Theophilus, I want you to know with certainty. And here's why you can know with certainty. It's because these guys were to be able to know. They're supposed to be able to understand. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they, this has got to be the other people in the room at least, if it's not the Pharisees. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. I've seen people come back from being clinically dead. Not many times, but several. That was a pretty outstanding thing. Remembering back to that. Can you imagine what it's like for these people? The drama that's been going on. I mean, somebody's pulling through. I mean, you're sitting inside having a meeting and all of a sudden stuff starts falling from the ceiling. You know, people are looking up and all of a sudden, now there's this big hole and here's this stretcher being, you know, it's almost like Peter's sheet with all the animals on it, right? All of a sudden, now here comes this thing down through the, through the roof and, and, and people are trying to scrunch out of the side because it's coming down right in front of Jesus and here's this paralyzed guy on here. And that paralyzed guy walks out carrying the stretcher. So on the which is easier? Is he really is he really trying to say that one is easier than the other, or that they're both equal? One is very much easier to say. Well, it's easier to say. But but they're connected to infinite. Both of them are connected to infinite power. But you see, that's the point he's trying to right. make to them: is that listen. I can say his sins are forgiven and you can accuse me of blasphemy. But just to let you know that it's not blasphemy because I am God, here's something that I'll give you that is tangible that you cannot miss. See, here's the thing. And, and again, this is, this is the same with truth in general. The same word that can heal, that can redeem, that can save, is the very same word that can also condemn, right? When someone hears the gospel and they reject the gospel, then in the day of visitation, that is going to serve to condemn them. They heard the truth and they chose to reject it. Those of us who are redeemed, we can't look and go, well, hey, you know, break my arm over here trying to pat myself on the back because the fact of the matter is, if Jesus hadn't opened my eyes, I'd be just as blind as these guys. Every bit. So he's basically made a declaration 
a god. But then he called himself the Son of Man. Is this, I, I don't know, did you tell me, was this the first time he's called himself? It is the son first man? time in the book of Luke okay. that he is referred to himself and they as know the Son of Man. one like the Son of Man in Daniel. That's in Daniel, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Ezekiel, I want to say, like 60 times. So I'm thinking he's kind of really rubbing their noses. He? Well, I wouldn't say that. I've I've been this, I love this one because it's kind of like C.S. Lewis, Lord Liar, Lunatic. It's like Lucy, you know, in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the professor Deary says, what are they teaching? Logic. What are they teaching in these schools? You know, it's, it's that because he's forcing them into a situation. You're right to be a shepherd and, and question this. You're right, a mere man, to say this would be blasphemy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're right that it, no one can forgive sins but God. Now, what do you do with this? Yeah. This guy just got up because I told him to. And so again. Work it back. You know, do the logic, do the math. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, it's interesting that, I, you know, you showed us that um, verse 26 struck with astonishment. It doesn't actually say, it says they were all. I guess that would be even if I were a Pharisee too, right? You That's would think, stunning. you would think, right? No, I just say, I just say struck with awe. I didn't say my heart was changed, right? right? right. But struck with awe, you have to be impressed by that. Now, where do you go from there? What do you do with that? He well, does, he does these works by building them. Yeah. Oh, and we're going to see it coming up here very So again, you would, you would look at you would think. But again, that and and the point that I want to draw out again is that it's very easy sometimes to get frustrated with people. How easy is it to get frustrated with your kids when you look and you go, "Dad, you just want to have this as a duh moment." Can't you see this? No, they can't. They hate God. Because that's the default. See, again, our society wants to say that at, at, at least, if you're not actually good, you're at least neutral. To where you can somehow, you can assess these things and, and come to an understanding. The lunacy of saying that little tiny kids have got the maturity in order to make some pretty adult decisions is, is, is so stupid. It's unimaginable. Yet, that's coming from a society that, again, when faced with reality, chooses to ignore it at every turn. And so, again, unless... God opens the eyes, they're going to remain blind. Unless God opens eyes so that they can actually see and understand, they're going to remain blind. They've been blinded by the evil one. And they are captive to him to do his will. It is an act of God in order to be able to counter that. And so... We should have compassion on people. It's difficult. In fact, it would be a little cruel, wouldn't it? To go to someone who was blind and expect them to appreciate a fine painting or to appreciate a sunrise when they can't see it. And there's no amount of wanting that's going to overcome the fact 
that they are physically blind. And so again, we should have compassion, which should drive us to what? Speak the truth and just keep fishing. Just keep throwing it out. So, he comes out of there and he walks by a tax collector booth. Verse 27, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. We need to move and so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Tax collectors could not testify in a Jewish court because it was assumed they were liars. They couldn't, they were banned from the temple. They were assumed to be corrupt because they could set, they could collect whatever it was that they wanted to demand. There was nothing wrong in that in and of itself, by the way. Because remember when John the Baptist was asked by the tax, what should we do? Just charge the taxes that you're supposed to. So there's nothing inherently wrong with the tax. Don't collect more than you're bound to. Now, Levi's a wealthy guy. And by the way, what's Levi's other name? Matthew. And so, he's met Jesus, and he's left everything behind to go follow him. And so, what does he do? He throws a big party for his friends so that his friends can meet Jesus gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now that is a shot across the bow, by the way. Because what is the Pharisees' assumption about themselves? Yeah, what's their self-assessment is, we're righteous. All right, well, since you guys won't acknowledge that you're sick, then I guess you don't need a doctor. You're not the ones I'm looking for. You're not the droids I'm looking for. I'm looking for those who'll acknowledge they're sick, who'll acknowledge that they're sinners. Those are the ones that I'm going to look for. So Jesus has power to call those who are thought unfit for service. A tax collector, he's like a Gentile. You don't even associate with this guy. And what's Jesus doing? Hey, I got a spot at my table for you. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So you guys just don't toe the line here for the way you ought to act. Which again, <laughs> we're going to run into here in a little while. Jesus is going to have another confrontation with the Pharisees. And he goes, you know what? John came and 
acted like you do, and you just said he had a demon. Now here I come, and I eat and drink, and you tell me I'm a glutton and a drunkard. You're just going to find fault anywhere you can and anyhow you can, right? Because again, it's not about truth. It's about maintaining their position and their authority. It was. Which is why Jesus never really did have anything real kind to say about Pharisees. Matthew 23, eight times. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then go into their practices. And Jesus said to him, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? Who's ever gone to a wedding where at the reception they say, I'm sorry, we don't have any food because we're all going to fast together to celebrate this wedding. Who has ever attended a wedding like that? (laughs) They didn't either. That was the thing about it. They didn't either. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. What do you end up with? If you've got an old piece of clothing and a new piece of clothing and you cut a piece off of the new one in order to try to patch the old one, what do you end up doing? You ruin both of them. There's no mixing these two. You end up ruining both. If you try to take something from the new, it's not going to work with the old. It's not going to match. It's not going to fit. And... What have you got left here with your new piece of clothing? You got a hole in it. So again, you can't mix and match here. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. So again, old wineskins, how did they get old? Because once upon a time, They were new, and someone put new wine into them, and the the process of fermentation stretches them out, right? So they've already been used. You can't put new wine into them because there ain't no more stretch left. And so if you try to put new wine into the old one, it ends up busting, and what do you have left? you got an old wineskin that can't be used for anything, and your wine's all spilled out, and so you can't use it either. So you can't mix and match these things. You've got old, you've got new. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough or the old is better. So why is Jesus saying this to the Pharisees? Jesus has power over the old and the new covenant. Now, should the Pharisees recognize the term New Covenant? No, like a new covenant, give them a heart of flesh. Aha. So, they should be familiar with the term because it's in Jeremiah 
and it's in Ezekiel. But the wordage, the actual verbiage, is in Jeremiah 31. They should be very familiar with that term. What's Jesus saying to them? This is that time. That's right. The old the, things are obsolete. And, uh, Bob Dylan lived in the first century. The times, they are a-changing. So, here's the idea. You guys are, have been used to operating under this framework, which is flawed, and it's made flawed more because of what you've done to it. There's a new sheriff in town. And there's a new set of rules. There's a new covenant. And it's one that is, again, demonstrated by what? What was the characteristic of the new covenant? I'm going to take away your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And you are going to be faithful to do them. That's what's coming. Not this imposed set of, of checklist that has no heart behind it. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. And so again, and again, going back to Isaiah again. Hearing, they will not hear. Seeing, they will not perceive, right? They're just not gonna get it. So Jesus has power over those. And the Pharisees, oh, they're too tied to the way things are. They have no interest in what is new and what is coming. Quickly. Jesus has power over the Sabbath too. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. Now is there anything wrong with that? They're walking through a field that does not belong to them and they're basically grabbing a handful and getting the stuff off of it so they can pop it in. Is there anything wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong with that. You were allowed Anybody was allowed to walk through your field and pick something by hand and consume it. They could not use a tool. Okay? Was it, was it just around the corners? Nope. Just... No, the corners and that stuff, that was the stuff they were supposed to leave for the poor, right? This is anybody can walk through your orchard. Anybody could walk through your vineyard. Anybody could walk through your wheat field. And, and pick just what would be used for them for tra- you know, to get a snack. Yeah. And you could do it to them. You, ju- you couldn't harvest. And by that meaning, you couldn't use tools. You can't go out there with a sickle and, hi there, pardon me, but I'm going to take this acre out of your field here real quick. That was, out, that was foul, all right? But for personal use, that was perfectly fine. The Pharisees look at that and go, nay, 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 nay. That's threshing. That's work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has got an answer for that one too. Some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, is that actually a true statement? 
under the rules of the Sabbath as established by God, no. It violated their rules. Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was angry, when he was hungry? Probably hangry. He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. Now he's going back and he's, he's referring to an event that's recorded in Scripture, right? He's going back to 1 Samuel. David is running from Saul. What does Saul represent, by the way? Man's wisdom? Saul is the dying dynasty. Because at that point, when, when David's running from Saul, something's already happened to David. He's already anointed. So here you have God's anointed one running away from the corrupt and the wicked current reigning dynasty. So Jesus is communicating with these guys on a multitude of levels here. And it was fine for David because the priest gave it to him. The priest gave him permission, in essence. So he's able to eat. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, I'm the Son of Man. And again, what we were talking about earlier, that going back to the references to Daniel, to Ezekiel, the Son of Man being really who? God. The Son of Man? Well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't govern me. I govern it. I established it. On another Sabbath, you get the idea that Jesus is kind of picking. He's not afraid of these guys. They're going to try and set him up here. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. How twisted are these guys? Wait a minute. Here's somebody who Jesus could actually do something good for, and we're going to try to twist that into making it an accusation. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, he's not talking to the man here. He's talking to the Pharisees. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? What's he intimating here? If you have opportunity to do good, and you choose not to do it, what is that tantamount to? You did evil. You had a chance to do good, and you walked away from it. After looking around at them all, and again, I love this, he's just made a very confrontive statement that's intended for them to, wait a minute, maybe I should look and consider my thoughts, my attitudes, and my actions here. And he's furthering it because he's 
looking at each one of them. Who else, who else experienced that look? Think about Peter. Remember? He's just denied Jesus three times. And Jesus looked at him. But notice the difference in how that's received. Peter is overcome with guilt and shame. Because he's, he knows he was wrong. Think about Jesus as he's talking to the Pharisees any old time. And they're, they're so pompous, you know. They're, they're so full of it. Um, and Jesus himself, he hated each one of them. Oh, yeah. It's amazing the things that Jesus could say to these guys. Hey, listen, I know what's going through those brain synapses of yours right now. I know how all your little neurons are interacting. After looking around them all, he said to him, now he's talking to the guy, stretch out your hand. Now notice, Jesus never actually, he doesn't touch him. He doesn't lift a finger. He doesn't say anything to the guy other than stretch out your hand. The guy stretches out his hand, which, by the way, he could not do before because it was withered. And he holds it out now, and it's withered no more. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Here again. <laughs> Who heals withered hands? In fact, where else in Scripture would you find that one? Maybe the guy who's paralyzed. Maybe, maybe it was because, you know, there, something was deformed. It was hardly a work either. That's what strikes me, though. You didn't even touch him. You, can't, you cannot even try to what make What work did he do? It. Exactly. He stretched out his hand like, what are you going to pin on me? You know, almost. But again, because again... The point with the healing, it's a benefit to the guy who's being healed, yeah. right? But what's the real point of this? He is bringing this right square in front of the Pharisees. You guys are so pig-headed that you can't, you won't see what's right in front of you. It's not that you can't, you won't. You won't. And very quickly. Verse 12, it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12, whom he also named as apostles. Now, who could be a disciple? Pretty much anybody could be a disciple, right? Who can be an apostle? Yeah, Jesus gets to choose them. Jesus has authority to choose who he's going to send out as his emissaries. Who were these guys? They're a bunch of nobodies. 
There was one guy who was rich, except he's just walked away from all of that. You've probably got seven fishermen. And, and I think Dave did a real good job laying that out last week. If you go to John 21, you've got Peter, you've got Nathaniel, you've got Thomas, you've got uh, James, you've got John, and then you've got two others that John got tired of listing names. So you've got seven guys who were all just, you know, the apostles on the fishing boat fishing. So you got a bunch of fishermen, you got a tax collector, and you got some other guys that are nobodies. Who picked Judas Iscariot? Jesus did. Why? Why did Jesus pick Judas? It's working out his will. Was Judas prophesied? Yeah, he was. He was in the Psalms. When it talks about, in fact, Peter talks about that in, uh, in Acts 1. He goes back and, and a lot of the Psalms, you know, the one who, you know, my friend, the one who, who shared with me has, has turned against me. When Jesus is praying, I'm not going to lose any of them except the son of perdition, right? So Jesus picked Judas, knowing who Judas was. Judas had everybody else fooled, but not Jesus. So, now, I'm sorry, but we kind of have to move fast. We've got to finish the book of Luke by the first Sunday in December. So we can't just go on a chapter a week. We've got to start picking up the pace. And so um, that's, that's just the reality of it. So questions. If you think of questions, email me. Or give me a call, all right? And then we'll, we'll carry on. I want to keep having the back and forth because that's part of the enjoyment of having a Sunday school class, all right? So let's pray. Father, again, how grateful we are. If you hadn't opened our eyes, we would still be blind. We would still be lost. And so thank you that you have... You have redeemed us and you have lavished on us so many gifts. You give us your spirit so that we can remember the things that you've said. You've given us a Bible in our language that we can study. We're so grateful. And so, Father, help us to, to not be hearers only, but doers of your word that we may proclaim your excellencies to those who are still blind. In Christ's name, amen.